because I think it's 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 a problem for dispensationalists and, and premillennialists. It brings complications. It, significant complications because growing up you just think, well, we're getting raptured off and God's going to blow this thing up and start over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's huge. And and I I'll be honest, I would love to hear a dispensationalist uh, or a premillennialist explain that verse to me because I don't know that I've ever heard an explanation for that. we are we're ready to step up to the challenge mr pearson today on to theology reacts we are responding to the apologia apologia studio guys who were responding to david french and eventually responding to what could be called radical two kingdom theology so uh, before we get into the clip that we're going to respond to, I think we should give a, an overview of what two-kingdom theology is, what radical two-kingdom theology is, what one-kingdom theology is. That would be helpful. Can we do this in a condensed format? We're going to have to try. Okay, all right. Well, two-kingdom theology, if you don't know what two-kingdom theology is, it states that there is a spiritual sphere of life where we live before God, quorum Deo is the, the Latin phrase that you see on Ligonier Ministries all the time. Uh, their articles say quorum Deo and stuff. It's uh, the, the spiritual sphere, and then there's a common or earthly sphere of life where men live before men. So in one sphere, you're living before God, and the other sphere, you're living bef- before men. Now, of course, the great irony in all this is that you're constantly in both spheres, you don't actually transfer from one sphere to another, but uh, we recognize that there are differences between these spheres if you're a two-kingdom guy like we are. Uh, there's also a version of two-kingdom theology called radical two-kingdom theology. And radical two-kingdom theology says that, yes, there are these two spheres and that they need to be radically separated. So if you just want an illustration in your mind, think of the Amish, okay? (laughs) There they are out on their own, totally separated from the world as much as they can be, uh, just trying to to keep things separate. And we know that Amish are often exceptions to certain government mandates and and things. They've won over their uh, authorities in many cases to allow them to be separate, that they can live in their own sphere apart from the world. But what's interesting is that radical two-kingdom theology today, especially in the realm of scholarship, has several reform voices who are uh, endorsing it, explaining it and endorsing it. You think of uh, Westminster Seminary, California. Those guys, there are several over there who have taken a more radical view of two-kingdom theology. Now, obviously, they're not going so far as to say that we should be like the Amish. Correct. These but, are not Amish people. I but should. they're very <laughs> <Good> much, <point. laughs> very much drawing a very harsh line and distinction between the, the the realm of the church and what we should be doing and engaged in versus the realm of the civil everything and yes. what the civil government, what civil culture, all these things, what those should look like. 
uh, strict, hard distinction separation to where the two really shouldn't mix much, if at all. Yeah, when, when I said think Amish, that was just for an opening illustration. I, and I think it is a helpful illustration because we're all pretty familiar with how separate the Amish are, right? But but yes, these Westminster guys aren't, aren't Amish. <laughs> They're Presbyterian. <laughs> uh, so in, if you take a more radical two-kingdom approach, if some people in this camp, you, you may agree with them, some in this camp would argue that the state shouldn't assist in the mission of the church in any way. Now, at first blush, I think a lot of us would agree with that. Like, yeah, we don't want the state meddling with the church's affairs. Mm-hmm. But think of the logical conclusion of that in regards to tax breaks and what churches are allowed to do uh, with schooling, uh, providing Christian schools, things of that nature. There are a lot of implications. But if you're in the more radical side, you're saying, look, the state shouldn't assist in the mission of the church in any way at any level, and the church shouldn't participate in any type of broad brush social efforts. So they would put, for instance, charity in the realm of the common sphere, the earthly sphere. And so a church making a part of its mission to have like a food pantry, throwing their church's name on it or whatever, and it's a, a public thing, they would see that as a violation of of the two spheres, that the church has a spiritual mission, not a social mission or a cultural mission. And so those two spheres need to be separated. And perhaps we should make a further distinction that this, when they're talking about the church, they're really talking about the organized church, right? As, as a, I don't want to say as an institution, that's not the right word exactly, but they're not saying that individuals shouldn't be involved in charity. Correct. They would affirm that that would be a good thing to do and proper right. and uh, yeah, have a soup kitchen. Yeah. Do all those things, but it shouldn't be underneath the umbrella of the mission of the local church and the activity of the local church, there's there's different goals and purposes for the actual local church activity that is not in that same sphere as yeah. the things you mentioned. Authority is a big part of this, too, where mm-hmm. they would say, look, the state has no authority over what the church does, and I think we would all agree with that. Uh, they would then go as far to say is the church shouldn't go out into the culture and try to exercise its authority in the culture in any way, that the authority of the church is purely ministerial and it's relegated to the realm of the spiritual, not the cultural. And so uh, this camp then, the radical two-kingdom camp, is very much against seeking unique Christian methodologies for tasks that are relegated to the common sphere of life. So uh, a Christian version of entertainment or a Christian approach to fill in the blank, if if Scripture hasn't explicitly called the church to do that, they're going to say, leave that to the common sphere. Mm-hmm. So we tell you all that to say, <laughs> these uh, guys from Apologia, or Apologia, Jeff Durbin and Luke Pearson that we're going to see in this video, they are not radical two-kingdom guys at all. They're actually critiquing radical two-kingdom. They're not even two kingdom guys in any sense. They are one kingdom theologians. They believe that there is no natural law that can lead unsaved people into an ethical government, but instead every government must be explicitly Christian. So as where the the two kingdom kind of separates these spheres, they don't see that separation. They see it all as one and Christ as authority over all, and that part of the church's mission is declaring that authority 
in the secular realm or the earthly realm or the common realm, whatever term you want to put on that. So the mission of the church now includes not just preaching Christ as Savior so that individuals may be one to Christ, but it's also preaching Christ as king to the government, to the authorities in the social, cultural realm or societal realm, so that whole governments may submit to God's law and then employ it in their authority over their constituents. That is the view that these guys take. And, and I, I do want to say, I, I meant to say this at the top and forgot. Um, we, we like Apologia, guys. Yeah. Um, they outdo us in a lot of areas of, of life. We want to totally <laughs> confess that. Um, their evangelism has been exemplary. Their approach to the presuppositional method of apologetics has been very good and helpful. Um, and influential on both of us, probably we could say you and I mm-hmm. both can for sure. Um, what what they're doing to reach people online, I think, is is great. Um, there are brothers in Christ. We we do love them. So well, I want to say all of that. And they uh, would say that all of those things are the outflow of this theology that they're about that we just described. Yeah, it's all tied together. Yeah, right. They would say, well, you you, you can't appreciate us for some of it, but not all of it, because. <laughs> They believe that their theology is consistent, as we all do. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how many of us would say, yeah, my theology is inconsistent, not consistent like all those other guys. <laughs> um, and, and we get that, but there are some disagreements that we have that we want to we wanna touch on in yeah. this video. So as they're having this conversation, again, they're re- responding to a video clip that da- from David French. Uh, there's a whole story with David French you don't need to know. But as they're having this conversation, they end up dunking on dispensationalists because we always get dunked on, right? Uh, nobody likes us. Here we are. <laughs> Woe was us. <laughs> no, we don't always get dunked on, but we, we're easy targets for a lot of things. And they give us a very generic treatment that largely misrepresents what we believe. So we want to answer that. And we also get challenged, as you heard in the clip, we get challenged to provide an interpretation of a particular New Testament passage. So we want to do that. Uh, starting at this point in their conversation, we have Jeff Durbin explaining how the Jews, based on First Testament scriptures, they believed that the Messiah was going to come, they expected the Messiah to come, who was going to rule and reign, and they didn't see any sort of sphere separation between the common and the spiritual. They didn't have a two-kingdom theology, the Jews, they had a one-kingdom theology, and Messiah was going to come and, and reign. And so Jeff Durbin is explaining that was the, their expectation, that should be our expectation, and now he has come, he has established his church, and he's ruling and reigning over all things in the earth as one kingdom, as the conquering king. Uh, this idea of uh, no separation, again, between common and spiritual, this is part and parcel, part and parcel, part and participle, <laughs> part and parcel to one kingdom theology. So unless you have any other comments to add before we get started, I say we just jump into it. Yeah, then. let's roll in. Of God is going to go forth from Zion into the world. And then it says in Isaiah 42 that this righteous servant who is coming, the one who won't, um, you know, break a bruised reed and, and a faintly smoldering wick, he will not extinguish. It says that he will establish justice in the earth on the earth, and he won't grow faint or weary until he's done so. And it says the coastlands are waiting for his law. So 
the Jews understood the Messiah is going to impact this world, actual, th- this actual world, and justice and righteousness are going to be a part of that affecting the world. In this life, he's going to have offspring as numerous as the stars, like the sand on the seashore. The Jews understood that the Messiah's kingdom was actually going to affect this life and this world. Isaiah 65 is a good example of that. Isaiah 65 talks about the covenant people of God being judged for their sin, and then God actually feeding his servants, and they're going to drink, and he's going to call them by a new name. And it talks about this is a long discussion. It talks about new heavens and new earth, but that's all covenantal language that Isaiah's already used to describe covenant. And it says that, that what's going to happen in Messiah's kingdom is going to actually affect the world itself, even to lifespans. People are living and dying. Um, that's clearly this world. But more importantly, and I'll end with this. And Luke, I think you want to say something. Yeah. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, just obliterates this kind of thinking. All authority in heaven and on earth. How many times do we need to say that before it finally gets through to all of us? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's past tense, first century. He said that in the context of Rome, in control that day. He said he had authority over Caesar that day. And he says, therefore go, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, and do what with them? Teach them to obey. And I'll just leave this and pass it to Luke. If we win the nations to Jesus as he commanded us to do, if we win the nations to Jesus as he commanded, and we teach them to obey his law, do you think that affects culture? You think the world's going to look different? This physical world will look different because of the great commission? Mm. I call this kind of perspective the great omission. It's just lacking the authority of Christ and the goal of the gospel. It's the omission of what is so great. This is the great commission. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a command. And so keep in mind in a moment when you think about what is the goal here, if we teach the nations to obey Jesus, does it affect culture? So going back to Colossians 1, I'm going to tie this all together like a fine rug, but... um, I mean, that's all, it has to do with everything you're talking about, whether it be dispensationalism. Um, you know, the the point is I'm trying to make is that Colossians one's always been big for me because we use it a lot with the cults talking about the deity of Christ. Yeah, right? deity, yeah. But like after that, like people don't read the rest of Colossians one, where you mentioned reconciling all things on earth, or heaven on earth, all things on earth. Like that's so important. And and growing up dispensational, I don't ever remember anybody ever even reading that verse because I think it's it's. It's a problem for dispensationalists and, and premillennialists. It brings complications. It, significant complications because growing up you just think, well, we're getting raptured off and God's going to blow this thing up and start over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's huge. And, and I, I'll be honest, I would love to hear a dispensationalist uh, or a premillennialist explain that verse to me because I don't know that I've ever heard an explanation for that. Yeah, in terms of tying this together with all of that yeah. Paul says is the goal of the gospel and what God's going to do in Christ. Right. He has, a, he has a consistent story and timeline of history. You're right. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, here we are to give a response to that. Hopefully the introduction before the clip and then the length of, you know, allowing them to speak uh, into that helps set the stage then for how a dispensationalist would articulate what's going on right now leading up to the second coming of Christ. Where do you think we should start, Mr. Chip Chase? Should we start with addressing... um addressing Durbin's comments about the Great Commission. Is that something? Uh, yeah, and then, and I then, think that's appropriate. Matthew yeah. 28. Mm-hmm. So obviously that text is, I mean, it's the Great Commission, right? That's the test. Yeah. If, if you've been in church any length of time, I'm sure this is something that uh, should be, I hope, uh, quite familiar with. Jesus Christ says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, it's on the basis of his authority, go and make disciples. And of course, as Durbin is presenting things, he is indicating that all authority on heaven and on earth 
means that as we make disciples, we have the responsibility to disciple the nations, and I believe he uses that language in terms of entire yes. group, nation groups, including the governmental sphere. It's not talking about yes. making individual disciples from each nation, but rather the entire nation becomes discipled to yes. Christ. So the, the paradigm shift is from, uh, instead of making disciples in instead of making disciples of individuals from the nations, you are making disciples of the nations themselves. Right. And he, he says that's that's our commission on the basis that Jesus Christ has all authority. And Not just pits, all authority, but right. all authority in heaven and, and on, earth. on earth. That's the, yeah. he, he, he mm-hmm. definitely emphasized and punctuated that point. Yes. As if we deny that Christ has authority because we, you know, we don't believe that we're to disciple the governments. Right. Like, that's the implication of, of his words, is that there's... We believe that Jesus has authority. You guys actually don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a while back, MacArthur had that sermon that got people all fired up. It was, yeah. like, last spring, I think, where he said, we lose down here. Right. We don't win down Talk, here. Yeah. Talking about the church. The church yeah. loses down here. Um probably more accurately could have said the church loses in this dispensation or in this age, right? That um, there there will be a time when down here the church doesn't lose, okay? But that's going to be a different age or a different dispensation. And uh, anyway, I think what post-mill guys think, post-millennial guys or one-kingdom theology guys think when we talk that way is that we are forfeiting the authority of Christ in the earth, when we recognize that there is a God of this age, a prince of the power of the air, who has been given freedom, who's been given authority by the one true capital A authority, God, to rule in this realm, uh, that now we are ipso facto saying, well, God doesn't have authority, Christ doesn't have authority in the earth because all authority has been given to Satan in our minds or something like that which is not what we're saying. We believe that when Christ says he has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he does have all authority. However, he is free to exercise that authority however he would like. He is in absolute control. That's another way of thinking of that. He's in absolute control of what goes on in heaven and on earth. Nothing slips outside of his control. Just like with Job, how Satan asked God for permission to mess with Job's life. Mm-hmm. And he was given that permission. That doesn't mean that in Job's life, for a time, God lost control or lost authority. He still maintained control and authority during that time. So uh, to to characterize our view as, well, if you're not discipling the nations and you don't believe Christ has authority, that's just wrong. It's just it's just not the way we teach or preach or understand that verse. Yeah, and it's... It... In the context of that passage, you know, of course, in the context of Matthew, it's not like Jesus didn't have authority, and then all of a sudden, now Jesus has authority, right? Jesus right. has demonstrated all throughout the Gospel of Matthew that he had authority. In fact, there, there's uh, the point of the healing the paralytic man that had been lowered down through the roof. The response of the people was they were amazed 
at his authority. Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins in that context. The people are amazed at his teaching. There's multiple places in the Gospel of Matthew that demonstrate that Jesus has authority. His resurrection from the dead vindicated him, declared that he still does have all authority in heaven and on earth. It is on the basis of that authority that we do go forth and obey him. Right? He, is, he deserves our obedience because he has authority to command us. He has authority to, t- to, uh, to tell us how we ought to be living our lives. It is on that basis that we go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that he, the one who has authority, has commanded. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's eternally the one true God of the universe. He is the one who issued commands to Israel. He is the one who Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah 6. He is the Son of Man who Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Um, He is the one that David wrote about. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is eternally Lord. Uh, He is eternally authority. So um, we, we don't believe that in any sense, at any time, and in any realm, he ever loses authority. Amen. Uh, now, the as to the disciples aspect, <clears throat> talking about discipling the nations versus discipling individuals from all the nations, I have a hard time seeing how mm. exegetically they could get to. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you how do you baptize an entire nation? <laughs> uh, teaching and baptizing them—that's how you, that's how we make disciples. And uh, you do that on an individual basis, right? And the results of the wide-ranging effects of that ministry are left up to the sovereign Lord who elects individuals from each nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And uh, he's the one who chooses who will be saved. And we just don't have any language uh, that says that the entire world will become Christianized as the world or as the church goes out and effectively disciples entire nations. Yeah, it just uh, it to to try to make that case from that text is certainly stretching it beyond the limits of what that text can bear. And we don't have instructions anywhere else in the rest of scripture on how to do that if that's what that text is trying to communicate to us. We have we don't have examples of that. In fact, I would even say we have instructions to the contrary about recognizing the reality that, hey, we are to honor our governments, we are to honor those who have authority over us, yet there's no instructions about seizing control of those things or how to uh, bring about his conception of one kingdom theology. Yeah, right. So, Then the other passage, the passage that we were specifically challenged to not only interpret, but read for the first time, perhaps, as Colossians 1.20. Uh, Luke Pearson said, growing up dispensational, he doesn't remember anybody ever reading it, uh, which I think is a little bit of a stretch. Um, but anyway, what does Colossians 1.20, 19 and 20, I guess we should read? What does it say, and how do we respond? Yeah, so this uh, this is the context for a great Christological passage declaring the, the greatness of who Christ is. This is a great passage for uh, defending the deity of Christ uh, and, and how everything was created through him and for him and all things hold together in him. And I'm actually going to pick things up in verse 18, and I'm reading from the ESV. And he is the head of the body, the church, 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For, or because, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now you're post-millennial since you read it? Yes. (laughs) I repent. I repent. (laughs) Okay. Truthfully. Okay. Truthfully. (laughs) So let's talk about what the argument is. Let's reiterate uh, to the best of our ability what they were saying about verse 20 and how that would, I don't know, lead someone to believe in one kingdom theology. It says in Colossians 1.20 that through Christ, the Father, or you could say God, it, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, is how the New American Standard reads, and through Him, Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, through Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So there's a reconciliation of things on earth through Christ that is the foundational understanding for this one kingdom theology from a New Testament perspective, that Christ is reconciling all things in earth right now. That's what they would say this verse is teaching. How do you respond? What are some initial thoughts? Few problems with that understanding. First problem is the time in which this reconciliation is said to take place, it is through the blood of his cross, right? That is how that has happened. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That reconciliation happened in a moment, right? That that happened at at the sacrifice of Christ on that cross is when that occurred. I I think it's a stretch to say that this refers to an ongoing reconciliation throughout ages that culminates in a perfectly reconciled and fully uh, subjected world unto Christ. Secondly, and this is something that I actually just noticed even now as as, as you were talking about that interpretation there, their emphasis is on earth, and on the basis of that, claiming for this one kingdom concept, and how Christ has authority, and Christ is is going to be subjecting all things on earth. But what about the phrase, or in heaven? What could that possibly be referring to? We would think perhaps the angelic realm. It would have to be. like there's there's yeah. If we leave the earthly yeah. sphere and we go into the heavenly sphere, it would have to be the angelic realm. So it would have to be talking about fallen angels. Yep. How are fallen angels going to be reconciled unto Christ? And so that's where I was uh, reading uh, some commentaries earlier about that concept, about how there's a reality that within this reconciliation, it's not simply a reconciliation of everything is going to be restored, perfect, back to, uh, in the sense of, I want to choose my words carefully, um, there's the, there's the idea of vanquishing the foe in the midst of that. That reconciliation includes this idea that that the enemies will be dealt with, that justice will be administered. And obviously we can all affirm that and we can all embrace that. But to say then that this is uh, th- this, that this teaches a all-encompassing 
kingdom of Christ is going to be established and it's going to grow and it's going to be established, that leaves out the the angelic realm. How is that going to be accomplished in both spheres? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, there's a disconnect there. Yeah, I mean, the fallen angels will never be elect angels. Right. There are uh, this. What's the book? Fred Dickinson, Angels. And then the subtitle is elect and evil. Yes. Right. Those are the two categories and they're locked in. They're locked into those categories. So that that's a, a important thing to think through in this verse that he's reconciling things in heaven. Um, and it does seem as though most commentators, I know earlier we were looking at Murray Harris and his commentary, he includes the angelic realm. Uh, it seems that most people do, but, um, Yes, we also have to recognize <laughs> that where it says in verse 20, through Christ, he's reconciling all things to himself, just as this doesn't mean that fallen angels will all of a sudden become elect angels. It also doesn't mean uh, that people who die in their sins are eventually going to somehow make it to heaven. We're not universalists. Mm, it, right. This verse does not teach universalism. And, and Some people would believe that and teach it right. that way, but all things is limited by the biblical truths that Paul himself presents even in this same letter. Um, when he says all things, he's talking about all things within a certain sphere, with a certain context to it. He doesn't literally mean every single person is, is going to be spiritually reconciled to God. Right. And, and I'm, I'm sure that the, our brothers over there at Apology oh, would yeah. affirm that 100%. They're not universalists. They're not universalists, right? right? They're not saying that, you know, so, so we're not saying that they are saying this, but we're just acknowledging that from the text. Yeah. And, and that's important because just as we're recognizing that on an individual spiritual level, that, that also applies to the broader level of all things in earth. Not every single thing in earth is going to be reconciled to God uh, in the way that it should be. So for instance, uh, you've you planted a tree however many years ago, that tree started to grow up and was doing well, and then it got some kind of disease and died. Well, we know that all of creation is subject to the fall, Romans chapter 8. And this verse is not saying, well, all things have been reconciled to, to God, therefore no trees will ever catch a disease, <laughs> right? Animals are still killing each other in the animal kingdom. Uh, we're not in the new heaven and new earth yet. In fact, we are living in a world that is continuously furnishing proof that we need a new heaven and a yes. new earth. And the very fact that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth shows us that entropy is real. Everything's winding down. Things are getting worse and worse to the point of, uh, Luke Pearson said, blowing things up and starting over. I don't know if I'd phrase it exactly that way, but it is leading to that great day of the Lord where there will be great destruction, not only in the earth, but in the heavenly realm. Things will be melting in the heavenlies and things will be renewed. And there's a need for that. It's not going to get better and better leading up to a new heaven and new earth. It's going to get worse and worse, and God himself is going to be inflicting destruction on his creation before he renews it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All of creation, 
and that is our longing and our hope as well, is the return of Christ when he will restore this world. That's what this world is waiting for. It is waiting for the return of Christ. It's not us who does the work to to restore creation back to its Edenic state. That is Christ's work that he will accomplish upon his return. Now, there is still a mission for the church, and there is still, of course, a means by which God accomplishes his purposes in the world. You and I are believers because God used some sort of earthly means, humanly means, to get the gospel to us. Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless one is sent? We, we recognize that. And God is doing an amazing work in the lives of people as he chooses to do so, as the free God, sovereign God of the universe. However, we don't have any promise in Scripture that the world as a whole is going to become totally Christianized leading up to the return of Christ. In fact, we see the opposite. We see the birth pangs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, 24 and 25. We see in Romans 1, God handing people over to their sin, and I think we can see in societies uh, that progression. I mean, it's happening in our society now. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an argument to be made that in the world as a whole, <laughs> that's going to be increasing more and more, especially when you consider the birth pangs illustration that Jesus gave, that is going to be happening more and more frequently on a more and more intense level. But the answer to that isn't the, um, isn't a radical separation. So we're not radical to kingdom guys. You know, we would we would agree on several of the critiques that the Apologia guys would have with Radical Two Kingdom. But the answer also isn't a one kingdom theology where we are then imposing God's law on whole governments as a means of discipling nations right. leading up to the return of Christ. Now, a lot of that sounds good, but it just isn't what Scripture presents to us, and it's not what Scripture calls us to do. That is not our commission. That's just not. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the presentation of, you know, what can we can expect as we continue to move forward in history, you know, scripture, you, know, you, you detailed several passages about the birth pains and all that. Uh, Paul wrote in Second Timothy 3, which Second Timothy was one of, one of, if not the last letter that Paul wrote. Uh, realize this, that in the last days, difficult day, times will come, and he describes all the awful things that will characterize humanity. Later on in verse uh, 13, he says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's like, that is, that's the reality of, of what we're dealing with. And then if you consider Second Thessalonians 2, and this, I know there's different interpretations of this text and passage as well, but it talks about the restrainer, the one that's in the world right now, restraining evil. Most dispensationalists argue that that's, that's the church, that, that our role in society is to be salt and light. We restrain evil by our presence and by our influence on the culture. So this is not, just our rejection of one kingdom theology does not mean that we check out. Yep. It does not mean that we don't engage in culture. So, so how are governments, how are authorities in the common sphere, whatever you want to call that, how are they then supposed to rule if not by uh, the Word of God? Well, we're not saying they shouldn't rule by the Word of God. We're saying that that's um, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes, right? Mm-hmm. And so we should we advocate for uh, truth in the world 
and that truth be brought to bear on society? Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we're not saying abandon society to just, you know, live in their lies. You know, we're not saying be be Amish, but we also recognize uh, there is an aspect in which God is the one who is sovereignly working through nations, bringing about his perfect will. And so it's not incumbent upon us to make sure the nations are Christian. That's God's business. Mm-hmm. We need to be faithful to evangelize, faithful to proclaim Christ. And the way that he wants to you know, sort out the governments, well, uh, that's his business. Uh, Romans 13, that's a hot-button passage these days, (laughs) but notice that God doesn't specify what a government should look like in that passage. Paul doesn't say, um, God is saying that, you know, this is the the way that a government should act. He, He just doesn't. In fact, earlier in the letter, in Romans 2, he talks about Gentiles who don't have the law. They do instinctively the things of the law. Even though they don't have the law, they do, do they do instinctively the things of the law, and they are a law to themselves, in that they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So there's this idea, too, where they're made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. All people have a conscience. There is something that's in their hearts that is instinctive, that God has fashioned in them, even in their fallen condition, it remains. And uh, that is how he sorts out the nations the way he wants to. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and again, we're not saying abandon governments, abandon nations, abandon all influence on the culture. We're saying go for it. But we're also saying, look, we recognize that God is the one in control of these things, and it's our role to witness to people, to evangelize, to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And that happens, by and large, on an individual level and should be happening at that individual level. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is our mandate, I believe, is, is going out and making disciples from all nations, individuals out of each nation. And it is an individual basis, conversational level type thing that goes on. And there's, God can use a variety of means to accomplish his purposes in that regard. And if you, if you uh, think about, you know, even, even as uh, Jeff Durbin was, was making the comments of something that I think we can agree with, you know, if, if we evangelize individuals— and those individuals get elected to office and they govern according to biblical principles, those things absolutely are going to have an impact on culture. Yep. But our call, our mission as the church is not to overthrow governments and make them Christian. Our mission is to evangelize the lost. And that may bear fruit within culture, but the culture isn't the mission proclaiming the gospel of Christ, that God may use that proclamation according to his ends, that is our mission. Yeah, that's it. And he, we see through history, he sometimes uses that to revolutionize cultures, to which we say, amen. Amen, and praise God. (laughs) And we get to enjoy it when it happens. And may he do it again. Yes, yes. But we don't judge our success. We don't determine whether we're being obedient on the basis of those types of results. Those results are up to the Lord. We focus on what is our explicit commission, which is reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ and leaving all the results, whether they believe or not, whether it affects the culture or not, leaving all of that up to King Jesus, and uh, he could return at any moment. 
for his bride. Amen. So, um, yeah, it's good stuff. I think we should stop there. There's so much that could be said, but we'll, we'll stop there. Huh? Longest react video yet. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And if you got anything you'd like us to react to respond to, send us some info, send us a link, contact us at show at dotheology.com. Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, check us out. Love to hear more from you. I don't do my do theology line yeah. on these. No. So, bye. If you want that, you got to subscribe to the podcast.